It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Even though Ilhan Omar was not there, she was absolutely omnipresent at the APAC conference. Islamophobia has become a major part of pro-Israel advocacy in the United States over the last 30 years. I'm Mehdi Hassan. Welcome to Deconstructed from the Intercept Studios in Washington, D.C. This week, APAC came to town. Yep, the American-Israel Public Affairs Committee, which, and I want to be very careful here, is a truly disgraceful organization. I'm not talking here about APAC's clear opposition to any kind of viable peace process or two-state solution in the Middle East. I'm not talking here about its de facto support for illegal Israeli settlements in the occupied Palestinian territories or its opposition to the Iran nuclear deal or even APAC's hosting of right-wing Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu just weeks after he did a deal involving the far-right Jewish power party, which APAC itself has called a racist and reprehensible party. Put all that to one side for a moment. No. I am talking about APAC's obsession, yes, obsession, with Representative Ilhan Omar and its very explicit role in mainstreaming Islamophobia in the United States. Let's deal with Omar first. The annual APAC policy conference attended by the great and the good of Washington, D.C. and beyond, attended by top Democrats and Republicans alike, took place this week. But the focus of the APAC conference, you could say, was less on Israel and more on Ilhan Omar, who of course criticised APAC's financial influence on US politics last month and had to apologise after being accused of anti-Semitism. In speech after speech, Omar was denounced, mocked, smeared, either explicitly or implicitly. Israelis did it. Here's Prime Minister Netanyahu. Take it from this Benjamin. It's not about the Benjamins. Republicans did it. Here's Vice President Mike Pence. Recently, a freshman Democrat in Congress trafficked in repeated anti-Semitic tropes. Alleged congressional support for Israel reflected an allegiance to a foreign country. And here's Senator Mitch McConnell. I've heard it suggested that our support for Israel, explained away by money or by secret dual loyalties. Even Democrats joined in the pylon. Here's House Majority Leader Steny Hoyer. When someone accuses American supporters of dual loyalty, I say, accuse me. And here's Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer. When someone looks at a neo-Nazi rally and sees some very fine people among its company, we must call it out. When someone suggests that money drives support for Israel, we must call it out. Did you hear that? In Chuck Schumer's eyes, Ilhan Omar criticizing AIPAC is the equivalent of Donald Trump praising neo-Nazis. He actually said that, just to get some cheap applause. I mean, for God's sake, shame on Schumer. Shame on him. Let's be clear. Omar is getting death threats every day. She was recently included in a hit list drawn up by a white nationalist domestic terrorist, a member of the Coast Guard, no less. 
Hundreds of people are showing up to protest at her public events to try and intimidate her and smear her as a Nazi. There is anti-Omar hysteria out there, both on the far right and in pro-Israel circles. And if, God forbid, something were to happen to Congresswoman Omar, Schumer and Hoyer will have blood on their hands. I'm sorry, but they will. It's reckless, irresponsible, frankly disgusting for them, both senior Democrats, to attack her in this way as they did at APAC. By the way, on a side note, from a purely tactical point of view, it's mad and totally self-destructive for craven Democratic leaders to go to APAC and basically endorse the cynical Republican argument that they, the Democrats, are the ones with an anti-Semitism problem, not the white nationalists on the right. Just listen to the President of the United States. The Democrats have become an anti-Israel party. They've become an anti-Jewish party. The issue, of course, is not that the Democrats are anti-Jewish, an absurd smear, but that the Democratic base has, in fact, been drifting away from Israel, especially younger Democrats. That's what the polls show. And that's probably why Democratic presidential candidates didn't turn up at the APAC policy conference this year. It wasn't a boycott, though, as Republicans are claiming. Well, it was by Senator Bernie Sanders, but not really by the rest of them. While presidential candidate Senator Kamala Harris, for example, didn't turn up to APAC's conference in D.C., she did simultaneously host an APAC delegation in California and tweeted out a picture of it. If the senator can't come to APAC, APAC can come to the senator. But look, what's wrong with top Democrats associating with APAC, some say? Apart from the fact that it shills for Israel's occupation. Well, the Islamophobia is a big problem too. A big, big problem. APAC has hosted the anti-Muslim bigot Steve Emerson on multiple occasions. Emerson is the guy who falsely claimed, among other things, that Birmingham in the UK was a Muslim-only city and a no-go zone for non-Muslims. The then-Conservative Prime Minister David Cameron called him a complete idiot. APAC gave $60,000 to Frank Gaffney, the head of the Centre for Security Policy, a think tank which peddles anti-Muslim conspiracy theories. Gaffney is credited as being one of the inspirations behind Donald Trump's Muslim ban. In fact, the Southern Poverty Law Centre has called him one of America's most notorious Islamophobes. APAC gave him 60 k Also this year, one of their big donors and former council members, Adam Milstein, had to pull out from speaking at the policy conference after he accused Ilhan Omar and her fellow Muslim-American lawmaker Rashida Tlaib of being representatives of the Muslim Brotherhood, whose values, quote, clash with American values. So APAC has a serious problem with Islamophobia, and it's becoming more and more toxic, thankfully, in democratic and progressive circles. But how do critics of APAC and the broader pro-Israel lobby carry on pushing back against them without getting accused of anti-Semitism? Joining me to discuss all this are Yusuf Munaya, executive director of the US Campaign for Palestinian Rights, and Deborah Shushan, the director of policy and government relations at Americans for Peace Now. Deborah, Yusuf... Thank you both for joining me on Deconstructed. Pleasure to be be here. Uh, Deborah, let's start with you. You were at the APAC policy conference here in Washington, D.C. this week. What was the highlight of APAC for you? Well, I think the highlight of of APAC, Mehdi, is very relevant to what we're talking about today because even though Ilhan Omar was not there and even though her name was not mentioned from the dais, Uh, She was absolutely omnipresent at the APAC conference. Most people, I think, who introduced the crowd 
addressed her comments, again, without using her name. And this was across Republican speakers and Democratic speakers, all of whom, of course, uh, either outright condemned her, which was generally the case, or certainly uh, put significant distance between themselves and Ilhan Omar. What was the chatter amongst delegates like, amongst the rank and file? Similar? Of course, of course. Um, I mean, I think within the crowd at APAC, you would be extremely hard-pressed to find anyone who had something positive or even neutral to say about Ilhan Omar. And just for our listeners at home around the world tuning in who hear about this kind of APAC, uh, this big bogeyman, pro-Israeli force on Capitol Hill, when you're at the policy conference in D.C., do you get a sense of power, influence, an organization that's taken seriously? Yes, you do. Both in terms of the grandeur of the conference. Uh, This is a conference that takes place every year at the Washington Convention Center, which is a huge facility. It is no secret. APAC brags about the fact that 18,000 people, supporters, converge on APAC to participate in the conference. Everything is high tech. And Probably most importantly, there's a huge number of politicians who come to address the crowd. Their presence is ubiquitous. So, yes, I would say you get that sense. Yusuf, why do you think APAC and the speakers at APAC this week have been so obsessed with Ilhan Omar? What is the strategy there, if there is one? I think it's easy for them to do. I think I've been very vocal about this. Representative Omar is somebody who exists at the intersection of multiple vulnerable identities as a black woman, as a Muslim, as a refugee in this country at a moment when we have a white supremacist in chief in the White House. And going after somebody like that is very, very politically inexpensive for Republicans and Democrats alike. And I think even though in the last six months we saw the worst anti-Semitic hate crime that we have seen, the most... In Pittsburgh. In Pittsburgh, precisely. The focus around anti-Semitism at APAC uh, was directed at Representative Omar. And the way I looked at it was as a washing machine, for anti-Semitism. And, you know, here, if you were a Republican or close to the administration or a Republican who is engaged in anti-Semitism yourself, you could show up, present your pro-Israel bona fides, point at Representative Omar and get a standing ovation from the crowd time and time again. Like Mike Pence did. Like Mike Pence Who's vice president to a man who praised neo-Nazis Like the Secretary of State did, like so many of the officials that were there, including Representative McCarthy, who himself was was tweeting out. The House Minority Leader who put out that tweet last year targeting three Jewish billionaires. one of, the, one of the big problems in the entire conversation around anti-Semitism is if you can present yourself as pro-Israel and specifically pro-right-wing in Israel, you somehow are able to put on this you know, invisible cloak of immunity when it comes to allegations of anti-Semitism. So, it doesn't seem to hit you the, the same way. Deborah, you're Jewish. This is true, man. Breaking news. Yes. Uh, is it fair when a lot of non-Jewish people who are watching this debate from outside will say, hold on, how come they don't bring up the Republican anti-Semites, as Yusuf mentioned? Why is APAC not going? Why are they hosting people like Pence, who are part of an administration which has spread anti-Semitic conspiracy theories? Um, Is that fair? Is that whataboutism? What's your response to people who say that to you? I think that's absolutely fair. And I think there are plenty 
progressive American Jews, and it should be pointed out that the majority of American Jews are and always have been progressive, take very much that position. We recognize, just as Yusuf said, we recognize where the chief threat to Jews in this country comes from, that it comes from white nationalists and white nationalism, which inspired, of course, the terrorist who killed 11 American Jews in the Tree of Life synagogue. Um, so, no, absolutely, we recognize that. And, um, and let me say that one reason I think that Ilhan Omar is so useful for APAC, and it ties into exactly this point, is because it enables APAC to, to try to make the argument that BDS— that anti-Zionism, divestment sanctions movement, correct, and anti-Zionism. Although uh, you know, actually, Ilhan Omar has has said that she supports two states, which is not an anti-Zionist position. But nonetheless, BDS is certainly associated in the minds of of many, and not without reason, with anti-Semitism. Uh, anti, excuse me, with anti-Zionism is what I meant to say. Yeah. They're not the same thing, in my view, as the number one threat, as equivalent to anti-Semitism. And I think that very nicely serves APAC's agenda in terms of its argument that BDS is a fundamental delegitimizer of the state of Israel. And APAC, of course, has made one of its key legislative priorities pushing anti-BDS legislation in Congress. So on that note about the vast majority of American Jews being progressive, as you mentioned, which is undeniably true, and the Republicans are trying now to kind of switch that around. Uh, Yusuf, APAC was targeted by MoveOn.org, the progressive uh, uh, activist group, which asked Democratic presidential candidates not to go to APAC this year for a multiplicity of reasons, including Islamophobia, its blocking of any kind of peace process, encouraging the Trump administration to pull out of the Iran deal, etc., etc. And yet, the top Democratic leaders turned up. Schumer, Pelosi, Hoyer. Is APAC an organization that top Democrat, self-style progressives should be allied with? And if not, why not? I think absolutely not. But I think what is happening is that there is a tremendous shift happening within the party. And it is primarily a shift that is prevalent at the base. And you have uh, leaders at the top of the party who have longstanding relationships with individuals and also organizations where, you know, they have been present at for year after year after year, often recycling much of the same language to, you know, get standing ovations before a crowd of APAC supporters. And it has really been sort of one of the least controversial things in Washington historically. Until now. Until now. That's definitely changed. But, you know, you have the legacy of that. Uh, and with many of particularly the, the politicians who have been around for some time, who are sitting at the top of these parties, who have really spent their career Careers developing these relationships caught in a bind between that past and the future of a party that understands that you simply cannot be progressive without supporting the human rights of Palestinians. Deborah, do you agree about the shift in the base? You work at the grassroots level. Is there a, a rift between not just a democratic base, but progressives, liberals across the United States and this idea of being solidly pro-Israel, no daylight between the U.S. and Israel? Is there, is there now a gap developing between that? I think there are different, there are definitely different notions of what it means to be pro-Israel and how one should be pro-Israel. There is the traditional APAC sense of being pro-Israel, 
which on the one hand ostensibly means being completely uncritical of whatever the current Israeli mm. government is doing, although there's problems with that because when there have been labor governments in the past, particularly the government of Yitzhak Rabin, APAC actually tried to undermine what he yeah. was doing in he terms of the out. Oslo Accords. He called them out, didn't he? He absolutely state. called them out, especially around the Jerusalem embassy yeah. or the idea of moving the embassy to Jerusalem and congressional legislation around that. And then you have, of course, uh, those of us who are pro-Israel. I work for an organization that is pro-Israel, but that views what is ultimately good for Israel is also pro-peace and pro-two-state solution, and ultimately, as we see it, also pro-Palestinian in terms of support for a Palestinian national movement and its rights. So there's a, a fundamental divide in terms of what it worried, means to be pro-Israel. Are you pro-Israel? worried as someone who defines yourself as pro-Israel in a liberal sense or a liberal Zionist sense? Is it fair to call you a liberal Zionist? That's fair, yeah. So are you worried that people might be going from one end of the spectrum to the other and just missing you out? So people are either diehard pro-Netanyahu, pro-Liquid, pro-Israel, or they're the other extreme, they're anti-Israel, they're pro-BDS. So I, th- I saw some Gallup polling that showed Democrat supports for Palestinians over Israelis is at its highest level, I think, since 2005. This idea that American Democrats at a grassroots level now sympathize with Palestinians more than Israelis, which was unprecedented in the past. But here's the problem with that polling. Okay. I'm glad you brought this up. The polling itself is problematic. I mean, the, the question you asked... Def- when you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary finds the answer you get, which Yusuf and I both know as as political scientists. In this case, the way that that question is asked is, who do you sympathize with more? Well, if I, as a liberal Zionist who was pro-Israel, pro-Palestinian, pro-peace, am asked that question, what do I answer? I don't know. I sympathize both with Palestinians and with Israelis. Asking a question like that there should be another alternative. Do you sympathize more with Palestinians or with Israelis? Or do you sympathize with both and want peace? Yusuf? So, of course, the way you ask the questions is going to you know, shape the answers that you get. We know that. The thing, though, about this polling that I think is undeniable, and, and one of the reasons why the question is the same this year as it was last year and so on, and the poll that you referenced, is because the pollsters are trying to measure change over time. And that change over time, that partisan divide, uh, is something that we're seeing not just in polls that ask the question that, that you mentioned with specific language around sympathy or whatnot, but on all issues around the Israeli-Palestinian question that we have seen over time, this gap is growing in an unprecedented way. 
So I want to come back to the partisan divide in a moment, but let's just get into some of the details of the whole Ilhan Omar controversy, because what she was attacked for originally, and what she originally apologized for, was her tweet that it's all about the Benjamin's baby referencing Puff Daddy uh, in relation to APAC, which she identified as the group she was saying had a financial influence on members of Congress. And there was this huge backlash. She was accused of anti-Semitism. She was also accused of not understanding how APAC works. Meghan McCain uh, spoke at APAC this week, and she said... Americans don't support Israel because APAC is influential. APAC is influential because Americans support Israel. Yusuf, what is wrong with Meghan McCain's analysis there? I think when, the way I would answer this is this is that line from Meghan McCain is the same sort of line that you would get from the NRA. You know, uh, the gun policies that we have in this country are the way that they are because America is pro-gun. And I think in a very generic sense, you know, the United States is a country where guns are supported in a general way more than many other places and also a place where there is sympathy and support for Israel. It's really not a question about the direction of the policy. It's really more a question of the extent, right? Uh, why is it that we don't have common sense gun control legislation? The NRA. It's because no, nobody it's, disputes it's, that. Absolutely. And so the, 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 the lobby, and I think, you know, while APAC is a massive, massive player, it is one of many different pro-Israel interest groups that are involved in helping to shape policy in a extremely pro-Israel direction. You know, if you look at the public opinion polling, yes, you find that there is general support for Israel, which I think is something like all public opinion is conditioned yeah. uh, on the media environment, the information and education that people have yeah. on these issues. The other thing that you see, though, is that when you ask people, what side do you want the United States government to take in resolving the Arab-Israeli issue? Over time, it's consistently large majorities that say, we want the United States to play an even-handed role which it or take no side, which it doesn't. Which, they, so which what people go to APAC to proudly say it doesn't. What explains that gap between where public sentiment is and the way that representatives of public sentiment in Congress So the pro-Israel lobby vote. plays a role in that gap. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, so I the only it's role, there's, there's other factors, geopolitics, et cetera, et cetera. Sure. There's a, I mean, there's a lot of things that shape the direction of the, the relationship. But, but if APAC was not having an impact they might as well close up and go home and spend the hundreds of millions of dollars that they raised to do this work on other things, right? I think it's very clear that they have an impact. It's very clear that that impact is shaping the direction of U.S. policy, not in its totality, but shaping it. Okay. Uh, and uh, I don't think it has been in a positive way. Deborah, you were nodding uh, as Yusuf there was responding to Meghan McCain's line. When you, as an American Jew, heard Ilhan Omar say it's all about the Benjamins, what was your reaction? Did you say, yeah, that's the correct analysis of how lobbying works? No. Or was it? No. Go on. No, no. I remember reading that tweet of Ilhan Omar's and doing a face palm and saying, oh, no. <laughs> and I'll tell you why. A couple of reasons. One of which is that for me as an American Jew, I saw what many of us saw, which is that there is a connection, this, uh, um, as the phrase has often been used, an anti-Semitic trope, that that comment played into knowingly or unknowingly about Jews and money, which I found concerning. Another thing that I found concerning about it is that it was overly simplistic, which I think for a member of Congress in particular was extremely problematic. And I realize it's a lyric Right. But to say it's all about the Benjamins. Well, no, it's not. 
Is it partly about the Benjamins? Yes, and that's why I'm. I was nodding when that Yusuf doesn't was have the speaking. same resonance as right. a lyric. It's, it's partly, it's about, partly right. about the no, Benjamins. I mean, do the Benjamins play a role? Netanyahu said this week at APAC, "Take it from this Benjamin. It's nothing to do with the Benjamins." And I disagree with that. And again, I was. You in accept a- Yusuf's point that there is an analogy between the APAC and the NRA. There's APAC the NRA of the Middle East. Is that fair to say? I would say, are they both lobbying groups that are influential if, that are groups. influential and that bring a lot of money to bear in order to shape policy in their direction that they choose? Yeah. Yes. So, uh, what's the simplistic bit? Unpack where she, you think she got it wrong. Right. So, where I think she got it wrong is that you know there's also some truth to what Meghan McCain had to say, which is that there is still a very significant amount of pro-Israel sentiment among Americans, but. As we know, it's not just about uh, broad public sentiment as measured in opinion polls. What's also important is the strength of preferences. And we know that single-issue voters have a very significant impact and disproportionate impact uh, in terms of legislation, in terms of going to the polls. So there are significant number of particularly evangelical Christians, which we haven't mentioned, and also American Jews, especially those on the right, who vote pro-Israel in a pro-Likudish sort of way as a, as a single issue. So they're able to have a disproportionate impact. So I think it's complicated. Just, okay, so and, just... and to have a Congress, for me, to have a Congresswoman tweeting something, you know, flippant, like it's all about the Benjamins, is not a contribution to discourse. Hence the face palming when okay. I saw that. And and you mentioned the idea of single issue voters. Um, one of the other accusations against Ilhan Omar in relation to APAC and the lobby, of course, was her comments about quote-unquote dual loyalty that were attributed to her comments that she made at a public event in Washington, D.C., which she says wasn't in relation to dual loyalty. It was in relation to members of Congress being asked to show allegiance to Israel. Um, Steny Hoyer, the House Majority Leader, turned up at APAC this week, and he said this. When someone accuses American supporters of dual loyalty, I say, accuse me. Deborah... Does that make any sense to you? On the one hand, it's anti-Semitic to accuse someone of dual loyalty. On the other hand, you get lots of applause at APAC if you say, accuse me of dual loyalty. I'm lost. I think the reason why that got a lot of applause is because, first of all, he obviously doesn't really believe that it's dual loyalty. And also because hearing a non-Jew say that, to express that sort of solidarity, you know, it's not Jews, it's... But Americans To be more fair broadly. to Representative Omar, she never referred to Jews either. She was referring to Congress, you are, you are which is majority non-Jewish. Look, you're absolutely correct. And this is a what I think is a really important point as we discuss Ilhan Omar, which is I think we have to be absolutely um, loyal in uh, as we quote her, as we talk about what she said, yeah. to actually quote what she actually said. I mean, many words have been imputed to her. Yes. Most recently, let's say, by Rabbi Shmuley Botea, who took out a full-page ad in the Washington Post that said something like, blah, blah, blah. The Jews, yeah. Jews control the world with my... Which she never said. In fact, she, she never said never the word said. Jews even once which in any of the controversial said, Which she never said. And you see right? lazy paraphrasing by journalists on TV, summarizing APAC as Jews. Weirdly, I was on CNN last week with Bill Kristol, and he went out of his way to say APAC is not a Jewish organization to Israel. And I said, I agree with Bill Kristol, which is not a line I ever thought I would say in public. <laughs> but he's right. I mean, he's actually pointing out a reality. Yusuf, how do we talk if we support the Palestinians and we want to call out APAC? How do we talk about APAC? 
without falling into some of these quote-unquote anti-Semitic tropes, without having people like Deborah do a face palm, without sounding simplistic about the role of lobbying. Is there a way? Is there a way of navigating that? Yeah, I, I think it, it's important to be accurate and precise and truthful uh, to the greatest extent possible in, in every comment that we make about this issue. Uh, I also think Because it's, there are anti-Semitic tropes involving ab- Jews running the world yes, and Jewish lobbies. Absolutely. Can, I, can and, I interrupt for a second? Oh, way. actually, this may be what Yusuf was going to yeah. say. And I apologize. I, no, I want to actually reference Yusuf here. Um, Because Yusuf recently on Twitter did something that I think was super important and I I shared it as well. He put out a list of common anti-Palestinian and anti-Muslim tropes. And I think it's extremely important to realize that there aren't only anti-Semitic tropes out there. The good news is you know, from the perspective of, of this American Jew, that even though we hear a lot of anti-Semitic tropes and that's extremely problematic, there is generally acceptance in the United States that anti-Semitism is not okay. The same is not true of Islamophobia. The same is not true of anti-Palestinian sentiment. Yes. And I think Yusuf did a real service. Okay. I appreciate that. And, and the big problem that I had with the entire conversation around Representative Omar's comments is how much Islamophobia there was in that entire spectacle. And I think also was very much present in what we saw uh, off of APAC's dais in the last, you know, several days. I agree. And, and here's the thing about racism. If it's about anything, it's about power. And it's about using language and dividing people in a way to create power structures that benefit some over others. So if we're going to combat racism, it's important to understand how in our efforts of doing that, we are contributing to these power dynamics. And I think in the singling out of Ilhan Omar, Representative Omar, and I think she was singled out in a way that nobody else has been for language that was, I think, mistaken to be anti-Semitic. And I don't think it was anti-Semitic. I think that entire process reinforced a tremendous amount of Islamophobia. And this is what I think also needs to be part of this discussion is the extent to which Islamophobia has become a major part of pro-Israel advocacy in the United States over the last 30 years. It's not all of pro-Israel advocacy, but by many actors in the and pro-Israel we saw movement, that at including APAC with people yes, like Adam Milstein, yes, who was forced which is, to pull Which out. is why it's okay to point the finger at Representative Omar, uh, but people are very reluctant to point the finger at the white supremacist. Because it fits chief. into quote-unquote Islamophobic tropes. Deborah, before we finish, I have to ask, right now there's all these anti-BDS bills being pushed through Congress, a lot of them by Republicans, not only by Republicans, but the Republicans have made it clear in talking to the press that they see this as a way of dividing the Democrats, making them choose between their base and Israel, making them look anti-Jewish. The president of the United States has accused the Democratic Party of being anti-Jewish. Of all um, people. Of all people. Um, uh, Hello, Kettle, this is part your black. Um, (laughs) What should the Democrats be saying or doing in response to deal with this brazen, cynical smear? It's a great question. There's the issue of the anti-BDS legislation on its merits, which we could have a long conversation about. This is legislation that in my organization, Americans for Peace Now, we've opposed for various reasons, because we believe in free speech, because we don't believe in the conflation of Israel with the settlements. Uh, so lots of lots of reasons for that. Frankly, I also think that having a congressional focus on 
these anti-BDS resolutions is a distraction from the real issues that are preventing peace between Israel and the Palestinians. And for that reason, as well, I think they're problematic. I think there's demonization involved. Do you worry that these Republican smears are going to stick? Sure, of course I do. And we should say that it goes beyond just the anti-BDS stuff. We have seen increasingly, I think we're going to see more of it, instances in which Republicans explicitly use anti-Semitism or at least a purported desire to combat yeah. anti-Semitism in order to defeat legislation they well, don't they like. Yemen. Exactly. That has absolutely nothing to, to do with anti-Semitism. And Yusuf, we're out of time, but I have to ask you this question because Deborah mentioned, you know, the, the deflection from the reality on the ground. As APAC is meeting in Washington, D.C., as Nancy Pelosi is saying, we have shared values to the crowd, Israel continues to besiege, blockade the Gaza Strip, which is still considered occupied territory by the United Nations. There have been rockets fired by groups inside of Gaza. Hamas have denied responsibility. Israel has blamed Hamas. Israel has been bombing Gaza uh, at a level which we haven't seen for several years now since the last major conflict in 2014. Tell our listeners why the Israeli argument that we are simply responding to rocket attacks on our homes, could you live under rocket fire? Why is that argument erroneous, disingenuous in your view? It's just completely devoid of context and history. There's a history there that is, you know, inconvenient for them maybe to discuss, but anyone who understands what has taken place over the past 70 years uh, knows that the Gaza Strip did not exist as it does today that way forever. The vast majority of people living in the Gaza Strip are refugees from areas outside of the Gaza Strip. They've been living under military occupation. They've been living under siege. And they've had their basic rights and services denied to them in what amounts to an, an open-air prison. If, you know, you, you look at actions coming from the Gaza Strip completely devoid of, of that context, you're never going to understand uh, what's going on, even, even if, uh, you know, some folks on the pro-Israel side would, would like you to do that. On that note, Yusuf Munaya, Deborah Shushan, we'll have to leave it there. Thank you both for joining me on Deconstructed. Thank you. Great to be with you. That was Yusuf Munaya and Deborah Shushan. And that's our show. Deconstructed's taking a bit of a break. We're taking a month off. We're going to be back in May with many more fascinating episodes, discussions, debates and interviews. But yeah, you'll miss us for the month of April. Do come back in May. Deconstructed is a production of First Look Media and The Intercept. Our producer is Zach Young. Adina Sayed Ahmed is our production assistant. The show was mixed by Brian Pugh. Lital Mullard is our executive producer. Our theme music was composed by Bart Warshaw. Betsy Reed is The Intercept's editor-in-chief. And I'm Mehdi Hassan. You can follow me on Twitter at Mehdi R. Hassan. If you haven't already, please do subscribe to the show so you can hear it every week. Go to theintercept.com forward slash deconstructed to subscribe from your podcast platform of choice, iPhone, Android whatever. If you're subscribed already, please do leave us a rating or review. It helps people find the show. And if you want to give us feedback, email us at podcasts at theintercept.com. Thanks so much. Remember, we're not around next week or in April, but we will be back in May and hopefully Donald Trump won't say anything controversial in the interim period. Have a great month. Hi. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great, too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. 